On today's Ink Studs, uh, it's an interview with Diane Newman. Now, for the first 10 minutes of the interview, there was some interference in the signal, so there is some warble to the audio. My apologies for that to both you listeners and to Diane um, for spending the time with me and having this happen to the audio. After the first 10 minutes, after the first song break, uh, the audio was fine. Um, I managed to fix it, but unfortunately the first 10 minutes are warbled. Um, yeah, enjoy. Bye. A girl went back to Napoli Because she missed the scenery The native dances and the charming songs But wait a minute Something's wrong Mambo Italiano, hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano, go, go, go. You mixed up Sigiliano, all you Calabrese do the Mambo like a crazy with a hey Mambo. Don't want a Tarantella, hey Mambo, no more a Mozzarella, hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano, try an enchilada with the fish bacala. Hey Gumba, I love how you dance a Take some other advice, Faisano. Learn how to mambo. If you're gonna be a square, you ain't gonna go nowhere. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Go, go, Joe. Shake like a Giovanni. Hey, look, as a dich, you get a happy in the pizza when you mambo. Shake it cause I love it when you take me Mama say you stop or I'm gonna tell a papa and I hate Jadrul You don't have to go to school Just make a weed a beat a bambino It's like a vino Kid you good at looking but you don't know it's cooking till you ain't mambo Mambo Italiano, hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano, oh, oh, oh. you mixed up Sigiliana, it's so delicious, everybody come capisce how to Mambo Italiano. That's nice. <clears throat> You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. My guest this week is Diane Newman. Diane's new book is Glitz to Go, a collection of her underground work through to the present from Fanographics, uh, especially with the character Dee Dee Glitz, the always fabulous with a Mai Tai in her hand, as well as the Twisted Sister anthologies, of which I think there were two collections put out um, both the first important. one was from Penguin USA. The second one's uh, Kitchen Sink. Mm-hmm. Both probably pretty far out of print now, but a good hunter can probably find them. You can uh, get them on um, Amazon, I think, used, or... Um, I don't know how how hard it is, but they're available. They are out of print. Yeah. Abe... Check Abe, Abe.com. Um, thank you for joining me today, Diane. And um, congrats on having the Glitch to Go collection out. It's something I'm really enjoying is seeing these um, folks, like a lot of the underground collect work being collected like this, because I've been kind of trying to hunt down specific comics to see and read and kind of get a better idea of people's work. And this book um, definitely saves me some hunting. <laughs> um, now you started in doing comics in 1972 um, and that was after you had moved from uh, New York to San Francisco correct? yes that's right tell me a bit about that move and kind of jumping into comics after that point it in was, time it um, was not 
plans at all. I just wanted to get the continent away from my ex-husband. So um, I met Aileen Kaminsky at a party, and I was carrying around this notebook I always did, which had drawings and little poems and things and doodles. And she liked it and asked me if I wanted to come to a women's comics meeting because they were just starting up. So it was kind of serendipity, you know. I was in the right place at the right time, and I didn't know it. I had no idea that that's what I wanted to do or that I would... It just happened, and I got kind of addicted to seeing my stuff in print. Do you have a real strong idea of what you wanted to do with comics right off the bat, jumping into them, or was it kind of learn on your way? It was definitely learn <laughs> not why you earn because there wasn't much earning involved but um definitely learning was a big learning process i had you know i had to learn which way to draw something i'd do something for my first comic it was supposed to be vertical and i drew it horizontal i mean i didn't start out planning anything it was just it really was kind of fun in san francisco at that time there were a huge amount of underground cartoonists there and you know, we'd have parties when a, a comic book came out, and um, it was really fun. Now, I had no idea, and I'm surprised I didn't, um, until I read the introduction you had done for Glitz to Go, about the kind of turbulence that surrounded women's comics. Um, a lot of people were afraid of Trina for a long time. Yeah, I think people still are. Some circles. <laughs> well, not me and not Aileen. <laughs> Did you, it, like, starting out doing comics and then all this drama surrounds the 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 area working you you were working in? Um, was there a part of you that just wanted to say screw it and just walk away? Well, I did. I I walked away from the women's comics. Um, collective and Aileen and I did the first Twisted Sisters comic in 1976 and it was just like okay we'll do whatever however long story we want you do front cover I'll do back cover and you know there was no interference and then when it was done we got last guest to publish it so Aileen was a pretty big support for what you were doing all along I think we, were, we were both supporting each other we felt a real connection and that our work had some common feeling in it and we became good friends and we kind of it, it wasn't really organized and you know I'll support you and you know it's just things that happened it's that that friendship that bond yeah we had a pretty strong bond now Twisted Sisters I was uh, rereading the uh, introduction this morning um, uh -huh. while prepping for this, for the the first, the Penguins collection. And you're very specific in just um, kind of stating how the work that you were putting into this was so kind of raw and politically incorrect and um, really it's all out there. Well, I think, you know, that was true. I mean, Eileen drew herself on the toilet bowl on the cover of Twisted Sisters. And um, we didn't want to do things where everybody was a goddess and, you know, um, all men were terrible. We were just telling kind of, having fun with telling stories, telling personal stories. In my case, I kind of hid behind Dee Dee, but um, it, it's so weird to me now to think about how it, creating a comic character like that, you know, that laughs and has her own personality. It really uh, is so strange because I look at it now and I think, you know, she really didn't change. Characters, you know, are supposed to grow up and change and mature or whatever. She's, you know, she is what she is. And uh, I kind of like that. She uh, definitely has a life of her own. Um, how you much? Know there was a, a, a play. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <gasps> well, I did read about the play in the book. I was wondering about. Um, the book or the work like the character is it, it when i first read it years ago and i was reading this character it seems like uh like a definite take 
on this very middle class lifestyle that the creator yourself at the time had no idea it's like reading this comics is like you definitely like kind of responding to something I was responding more to uh, a meme than uh, my own particular story. I think Aileen was definitely uh, reacting to her own story, you know, mm-hmm. um, with her crazy parents and very materialistic. My parents were communists, um, so I, I really didn't grow up in that world, except that I lived in it. My parents moved to Canarsie in 1960, and... My neighbors, you know, all had wall-to-wall carpeting, take off his shoes, and, um, well, I don't know if you ever saw Canarsie Creeps. Oh, that's in, it's in the, um, anthology. It's, it's a little, um, eight-pager. We used to call them eight-pagers. They sold for seven cents. And they were, like, two pieces of eight-and-a-half by eleven paper folded in a certain way so you could get, um, a quarter of them each made eight pages. Mm -hmm. And a whole bunch of people did them just for fun, you know, they weren't sold really, or it was just like kind of something that, oh, he did that, that looks cool, I think I'll do it too. So I know I remember seeing um, Art Spiegelman and and Bill, my husband, Bill Griffith, and Justin Green, a lot of people just did them just for the hell of it. So that was, that was pretty early for me, it was 1974 or that was Canarsie, and that was my reaction to it. And so a lot of um, Dee Dee comes from what I think I would be if I had never left, you know, and the kind of push-pull thing where, oh, my God, I could have spent my whole life eating bagels on Queens Boulevard, you know, which is something to be avoided. (laughs) (laughs) For some, that that would be their ideal in life, and others probably not.
And we're back. I'm talking to my guest Diane Newman, whose new book is Glitz to Go, and we're talking about the uh, main character Dee Dee Glitz. Um, a kind of, I don't know how to describe her. I really can't describe her. Well, she's somewhere between a drag queen and um, an actual middle class woman who's trapped in Long Island. <laughs> now you were mentioning there was a play done on Dee Dee Glitz or a musical. Yeah. Did you I ever see say, excuse me, go on. Well, did you ever see a drag version of Dee Dee? Um, I think that I saw a lot of unconscious ones. <laughs> Tell me about the, the musical and how that started out. Well it's a a group of um a, a women's group a theater, small theater group called Blaine Nicolette's. They actually started out in a um, porno theater because one of the um, women's boyfriends was like the manager of a porno theater, so they had a stage and they would go on at midnight and do this really strange stuff. And they called themselves the Nicolette's because it cost a nickel to get in and see them. And they were a lot like... Um, Oh, there was, I can't remember the name of this. There were a lot of kind of, there were some gay theater groups and a lot of extreme things with uh, people pretending to be nuns and just a lot of weird theater stuff. But they did, they did um, a play called Peter Pan. That was before I met them. And actually, Trina worked with them and she was, um, she designed the poster for them and stuff. And then in, um, they came to me and just said, you know, we'd like to do um, a play based on your work. And I got completely involved. I designed all the costumes, and I designed the sets, and I painted the sets. I got friends to help me paint the sets. And I wrote the script with them, and, you know, I taught the actress who played Dee Dee how to have a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> she was very good at it. And... Um, Luckily, she had spent some time in New York, even though she was from Arizona, so that wasn't hard. But I had a hard time with um, some of them. The woman who played Dee Dee's mother, whose name is Irma, had a hard time. She sounded like she was from California a lot. But aside from that, um, it was fun. You know, I it didn't matter. And I, I don't know, I got completely detoured from comics for quite a while doing all that. It was totally involving. It was some kind of insane ego trip to have, <laughs> you know, all this stuff going on about my character and and it was very surreal. Were they based on stories that you'd already done or did you do... Yes. Okay. yes. It was a sort of a, a conglomeration of some different stories. It was called I'd Rather Be Doing Something Else the Dee Dee Glitz story. Mm -hmm. And, um... There were, there's a, one of the stories, one of the early stories I did um, for women's comics. Um, we had, I think we had a crime issue. So I had, she chose crime, and Dee Dee robs a bank, and she gets away with it. She's pregnant, and the guy is already married, and she didn't know it. and So she robs a bank, gets away with it, and goes to Rio. So a version of that is part of it, and um, other things from different stories come in. Mostly it's the character and her world, you know. She, mm -hmm. Her best friend Loretta and her sister and her daughter Crystal and her mother, you know. And it was all women, so we had one of the women played um, all the men parts. She played a, like a loan officer who wouldn't give her a loan and she played a bartender and she played... Um, some guy who was an asshole, you know. <laughs> so it, she did a really good job too. It was um, totally involving for a long time. We even took a, a version of it of the show to uh, New York. It played at the West Best Theater. It was like just a. It was called Anarchy in High Heels, and it was just some of the songs from Dee Dee and some of their earlier songs. And. Um, so we went to New York. We all shared an apartment there, and things. Um, 
it was interesting to get back to comics after that experience because the character was Wheeler. Yeah. You know, I'd been dealing with her in 3D. I'd been seeing all the actresses and uh, when you do, when you create a character, they are real to you, especially after a while. So it's not that she wasn't real to begin with, but there was a definite change. Is this around the time when you started um interacting as a character in your comics with Dee Dee? Um, that came up maybe I think that started with the maybe the story I did for I did a solo comic called True Glitz mm -hmm. and um, the story I did for it that was a new story was um, Life in the Bagel Belt and I think that was sort of the beginning of me doing that. Although I had done, I had done stories all along, you know, about my life and where I was just myself, but I hadn't done it with me and Dee Dee. And that's, that's what was different and that was incredible. I don't know if that happened because of Nicolette's. I don't think so. I don't know what happened, but once I started doing it, I couldn't stop. I really <laughs> liked doing it. It was like, I became a character and Dee Dee was a character and the dialogue between us and the fighting between us and I have an unfinished story I'm working on. I don't know when I'll finish it, but it it's all involved with that. It's like a story within a story, and a, it's a mystery story. What part of you does... Oh, go ahead. Go on, I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. It you was called the Decorated to Death. <laughs> is, there, uh, is this just something you're just going to... Do you know how it's going to be published, or is it just something you're working no, on just no, for the I fun of it? No, I don't know. It's actually something I abandoned. Oh, okay. you know, I think a lot of cartoonists have a story they abandoned, and I don't know if I'll get back to it or not. I've been doing a lot of sculpture since, and I have another idea for a book, um, like a graphic novel, that I want to do also about my parents. So I don't know when I'll get back to it. What part of you do you think Dee Dee represents? Well, I guess the wise-ass part, for one, but um, I used to joke that, you know, Dee Dee was the blonde wig in the closet, but definitely she's part of me. I'm I don't think I really know exactly how, except that a lot of it is what I didn't want to be, and then sort of what maybe I secretly did want to be, or that I was fascinated by, and... Um, plus, you know, just a desire to do something satirical and funny. And also, the area that I lived in, I just felt, you know, like I went to this school called the High School of Music and Art, and it was basically, you know, how to be a beatnik. And so I come back to Canarsie from being a beatnik, and, you know, I had a lot of, um, I don't know, early, late teens contempt for where I came from. Yeah. You you did uh, one story about uh, a lot of the friends you had at that time and just how you kind of went away from them or you all, you're like, I guess, the dissolving of the relationships, right? Yeah, well, that was um, actually some of my best friends are, I think you're talking about, and those were friends from Canarsie that I stayed with for a while, but after being in in music and art for a while, we really didn't have anything in common. I mm -hmm. see them sometimes, and a, a new friend that I made at at music and art, we traveled on the subway together, and um, she's actually a character that helped me create the Bagel Belt because she actually stayed in Canarsie and she married her boyfriend and she did everything you're supposed to do. And then she moved to Long Island and had a husband and two kids and, you know, had the usual problems. And when we would meet, sometimes we'd meet and go to the um, the Rainbow Room and have Manhattans, and she would tell me these incredible stories about her past and, and you know, what it was like. She's an interior decorator. And I went to a store in Long Island, and, you know, so she was my friend, but she also became this incredible amount of material 
you know, that I used in, so I used it in the bagel belt and then in Back to the Bagel Belt, I have myself as a character talking to Dee Dee and like she's the Rhonda character in that, in that story. So I feel like in some ways we're still close, even though I haven't seen her for quite a while, but that and I didn't mind, I don't think she really minded that I used her for material, but I felt kind of guilty about it. Maybe it added a little excitement. Well, she got into it. I, I remember one time we went to the we went to the, the Rainbow Room and I taped her, because I knew I could never remember the, the nuances and, and the, the wording. and um, It was incredible. So she knew that and wanted me to do that. It's uh, it's good to have a willing, a willing um, participant like that. Personne maintenant ne me prend au sérieux. Le seul qui me comprenne bien, ici c'est mon petit chien. Il me parle, il me trouve intéressant. Caressant, lui seul au fond devine tout ce que ressent. J'ai de la poésie. La fantaisie, mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant. J'ai le bras puissant, très enlaçant, mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant. J'ai la main câline et très coquine. Je possède sans me vanter un admirable doigté. Mieux que Paganini, je fais des pizzicatis. Mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant, c'est énervant. Personne ne s'en sert maintenant. J'ai de l'émotion, de la passion, mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant. J'ai beaucoup d'ardeur, beaucoup de vigueur, mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant. Je suis nerveux comme tout, le matin surtout. Je roucoule comme un pigeon, je bourgeonne comme un bourgeon. Quand le soleil se lève, je sens bouillonner ma sève. Mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant. Oh, c'est énervant. Personne ne s'en sert maintenant. J'ai le cœur plein d'espoir, plein de bon vouloir. Mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant. Oh, J'ai du sentiment, du dévouement. Mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant Dans un coin secret que nul ne connaît J'ai des millions de baisers que je viens d'économiser Bref, j'ai tout ce qu'il faut pour acheter un marmot Mais personne ne s'en sert maintenant Dieu que c'est énervant Personne ne s'en sert maintenant One of the things that really strikes me with uh with the Dee Dee stories and maybe she kind of feeds into this is the settings um you're saying she's interior decorator the places that Dee Dee exists in like her home yeah. is just so fabulously gaudy and just always seems unique like sometimes I'll find people will kind of create a setting for the characters who exist in and that's it and it won't really yeah. change well it's sort of variations on the theme she's always going to have an extremely decorated house <laughs> I mean the first time that happened was in um, the fabulous world of Dee Dee Glitz which is the story that was in the first Twisted Sisters comic and I got into every single detail I, I did research for it I got magazines of um, catalogs for like resorts in the Poconos and spas and um, it was really fun and actually that was see that was very early work so after a certain point I just started using scratchboard so that's very different 
kind of drawing, the scratch board and the, and the just pen and ink or brush and ink. I was going to ask about that. I thought some of the work was scratch board, but I wasn't too sure because it seems like something that you that I wouldn't expect to be used. No, it's, all, it's scratchbook. Um, I, I can't remember the first story that I did that was uh, scratch board, but once I did it, I just, I liked it and I didn't want to go back to just using Bristol. Mm -hmm. So um, the kind of scratch board I use is white. I think most people think of scratch board as being black and you scratch away to get white the way mm -hmm. Christine Critter did. And in the Twisted Sisters books, I don't know if you know Christine, but um, she did scratch board, very beautiful, and so did Penny Moran, but they did white on black only. And I had, when you have white scratch board, you have the choice of either putting down black ink and scratching into it or putting black ink on white paper. So that's what I like to do. I'm just looking at her stuff now. Um, it's fantastic. I I love that about your work, though. This fact that it's not. I don't know. It's changing. It's it seems like there's a a vitality to it for when you're making it. Like you're just not just plunking out another comic. Is that something? Well, I haven't done. I haven't done enough to just plunk <laughs> out another comic. I guess so. But is that something for yourself, like to keep? that excitement in creating comics is to be able to just like have have it be different, have it changing what I you're working with or is it just You're assuming more control than I have <laughs> it just things, it sort of happens and I, I don't think I chose a style or I, I didn't have any intellectual ideas about what I was doing I just sort of did what I could do and the thing that's good about doing that is it's very direct. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing something that you're not thinking about, and you're using a different part of your brain. And sometimes it feels like you just let it out. You know, it's already in there, and you're just letting it out. One of the very direct things in the book is um, the sexualized nature of Dee Dee's uh, adventures. And the yeah, I realized that. <laughs> <laughs> I was putting the book together. I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> well, some of it was specific um, for either a comic book that had a... There was a, a women's comic issue that Joyce Farmer edited that was a sexually incorrect fetish issue, I think. So certain um, things seem to demand that. And then some of the stories are for young lust. And mm -hmm. um, which is parody of romance comics, extremely sexualized. Uh, you probably know it. Yeah. Um, so others may not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's the description. And so I think some of that came from you know having a reason to do it. And then it's very. I still remember how I felt the first time. Like I drew a penis. It was really. Um, hard. <laughs> you feel like you're really breaking a taboo, and you are. Was that one of the things um, with Twisted Sisters? Um, because I mean, there's a lot of work that kind of runs in that same kind of. I don't know if I'm gonna say taboo breaking, but there's definitely touching on very visceral, very personal s sexual stories. Is that one of the reasons to really? have that stuff out there or like put those books together um, you're talking about the Twisted Sisters anthology yeah because I'm thinking when you have like creators like like Phoebe Gleckner um... I tell you my, my um, primarily the way I was an editor was I called up people whose work I liked I asked them to do a story and I gave them a rough idea of pages and um I didn't edit it afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, in the second issue, I did a little bit of edit editing because I had some newer cartoonists who hadn't been um, had as much experience. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I did a little bit of editing, but mostly, you know, you don't want to edit your peers. Well, what I mean it's by editing, hard thing to do. What I mean by it, like, is is the curating aspect. Yeah. Well, like I said, primarily that was, I think, maybe that's the kind of stuff I was drawn to. That's the only thing I can say about it. I mean. Mm-hmm. It was all work I liked, which was a big relief to me after being in women's comics because I felt that um, there was some stuff that was really, really good and there was some stuff that was very amateurish or stuff I didn't like. And so it was really a great change and fun to be able to just be with artists I respected. And it really made a difference, I think, because... Even though, like in the first anthology, everything was pre-published, and um, but people didn't know about it. It had yeah. been in women's comics. Some of it had been in Weirdo, which had a bigger audience. But um, once people, I would get reviews and comments, and you know, the Washington Post, and watch out for the women cartoonists, and look at all, you know, and it was like the, the work hadn't existed before, even though it had. I was actually really proud and happy that I was able to get that work out, and um, it was a big deal. You know, it went from underground um, stores to, like, shopping malls and things for a little while. I didn't keep it up. What was the choice of wanting to do a specific women's anthology? Um... I think I felt that there were enough um, opportunities for most of the men cartoonists that I knew, mm-hmm. and that there was this really good work that was kind of being hidden, like I said earlier, and um, I was perfectly willing, I knew that whatever I did, I was going to have an adjective, even if I didn't use it, so I thought I might as well use it. You, you have an adjective unless you're a white male cartoonist. Yeah. I, I just I definitely see the um the parables at play with uh, a lot more opportunities for for male cartoonists especially at that point in time. I just want to know like your own interests in 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 doing that. Well, I would be very happy to do one to you know, do an anthology that wasn't all women. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm in a show that has two adjectives. Jewish women cartoonists. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy with the show. I'm very proud of it, but um, it would be nice if you didn't need to have an adjective. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that show. You're, you guys have a, a Kickstarter right now, am I correct? Yes. A little fun. Although I didn't know what that even meant at first, but yes, they're trying to, they want to um, the show has already been started in San Francisco and it went to Toronto and now it's at the Yeshiva University Art Museum and now then it's going to go I think to Ann Arbor and they want it to travel more so that's what the Kickstarter thing is for. Did you have a chance to see the show? Yes, I I was on one round table and went to see the show and um, I there were a lot of cartoonists I've never seen and there were women from Israel. It was very interesting. Um, the work is pretty strong. What kind of thoughts do you have like coming out of that, like seeing kind of the progression or the change or the development in work? I don't even know if development's right term, but just like looking how you've gone from the days with women's comics and Twisted Sisters, and now you have this, the collection of the Jewish women, um, and just no, see where already, it's come. Um, there was a, a show, I think, before this that was um, opened in Paris, and it was Jewish cartoonists. Mm-hmm. So I was already in this traveling show of Jewish cartoonists, and so this is like the next thing. I don't know what. I, I don't mind it, but it, I would like it to be, you know, good cartoonists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these were good cartoonists that went from, you know, Superman um, to the present and then Catcher and people like that. So it was a very good show, and I think it might still be traveling. Um, It went all over Europe and Germany and 
um, I think Australia. Is this the same one they had in New York and L.A.? No, I don't think so. I don't know what that was. I know there was a, a Jewish cartoonist show. I um, don't. Well, this one started in San Francisco. I, okay. I don't think it went to New York. Okay, it might be a different show. Probably. That's okay. More horror oh, shows which, is which good. one are you talking about now? I'm confused. <sighs> I can't remember the name of it right now. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's okay. There's a, there's a lot to see. And how does that feel with the now um going coming from the underground to seeing work in museums and art galleries being presented in this different aspect? Well, I like it because it's just another way to you know, it is art. I don't believe in this high art, low art stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's art, and if people like it enough to put it in the gallery or museum, great. You know, And I have press for that. I did a, I curated a show at White Columns in New York um, of the art from the second Twisted Sisters anthology. And um, I think it's, personally, I really like to look at original art, you know, as a cartoonist, it's I love to look at original cartoon art. I remember there was a great pogo show at the San Francisco Art Museum, and just um, it is very different from even though it's you know work for print, it's still for publication. It's still very exciting to see the originals, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I love to see just like um, the style, and you can kind of see the hand where the hand was going, and even how they cover up mistakes. Right. That right was... out. <laughs> we had a show here in Vancouver that had the uh, all the pages from Binky Brown, the Virgin Mary. Oh, great. All in wow. one one room and you could see it all and that was pretty amazing to kind of just follow it and see see oh, the work. Nice. Yeah. That must have been a very interesting show. It was. I mean, Justin is one of the best cartoonists to exist, so it's nice to hear that he had a show and that people were looking at it. Um, when you were, was he one of the folks you had seen at that point? Because I know that particular book, like that point, when, I was, when you were starting and you were looking at stuff and you'd seen Aline's work, was Binky Brown something that you had seen as well? I think I probably saw it at the same time, but um, there were a huge amount of comics that were a big influence on me even before I moved um, to San Francisco and mostly that was the Zaps that came out like when a new Zap comic came out that was like a huge deal it was this part of the counterculture mm-hmm. and um, so even before I came out I was aware of of underground comics but I don't think at that point I had seen and I, I probably saw the Furry Freak Brothers and Zaps in the beginning when I, before I came to San Francisco. And then when I came to San Francisco, I met all these cartoonists and saw their work, you know, everything from insect fear to the leather nun, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And it was fascinating and exciting. And um, I'm not sure I remember the exact question I'm answering. I was just wondering about um, seeing that kind of level of personal comic that oh, that Justin was Brown. doing, yeah. yeah, because I mean, there there is something very different about the work that he did and the work that Aline did that was very, very just putting it all out there. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Aline did stuff that before anybody else could say anything bad, she did it all herself. You know, she laid it all out there so nobody else could say anything worse than what she said about herself. <laughs> And um, I, she was extremely influenced by Justin in doing autobiographical stuff. She um, talks about Justin's in her book, um, her latest book that's out. I think it's, was it Need Love? Yeah. And um, so, you know, a lot of people got into autobiographical comics way before I did. I mean, I I was perfectly happy to do it at a distance, you know, to hide behind a character for a long time. I did occasional 
um, personal comics like the, some of my best friends are or coming of age in Canarsie but um, for the most part I did um, satirical stuff where I hid behind Dee Dee and then I started to change that and you can see that in this anthology very clearly mm-hmm. now you were talking earlier about a book you think you're possibly going to work on and you have a two page thing that touches on it um, the red diaper the story of your communist parents and yes. I, I'm really curious about it. I'm really fascinated by that I, I'm uh, I'm definitely planning to do it I got I did this story for it was a fanographic special issue they had these big kind of coffee tail uh, magazine that they were putting out quarterly mm -hmm. I think for a while and they all had a theme, so the theme of the issue was politics. And so I did the Red Diaper Baby, and it was extremely personal and difficult. You know, I found myself crying when I was drawing my father and um, coming to terms with that the whole kind of political um, ideas that I had just sort of absorbed. You know, my parents were not communists, I didn't know they were communists until I was 30 or 40, you know, they, they hid it, they were underground. So um, I started finding out things about them when I was doing this book. The first thing I realized was how little I knew when I was doing the, the story, I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, that story was in a show at the Adam Baumgold um, Gallery in New York, and uh, somebody bought it, and I was really um, surprised. and. I started thinking about, I started getting very excited about doing that book. And um, doing my own anthology kind of came first because it's something like Gary Grug was after me to do for a really long time, and I, I really wanted it out there. I wanted all the work in one place. So I put that aside. But I've been doing a lot of research. There's a library at NYU that's basically, I think the American Communist Party donated all of their, um, all their stuff to oh, that wow. library. And um, they have some of it is cataloged and some of it is just in boxes. And you ask for it and you get a box and it's got, you know, actual newspapers in it and real, a ticket or ephemera that, it's um, fascinating. And um, I'd like to go back and you know, live in New York for a little bit and do a, do work on um, research there. I also did research at the Library of Congress, and that was that was very interesting because somehow I wound up in in the office of this guy who worked for the Library of Congress and was a really well known um, sort of anti communist. Um, like exposer of the KGB and he translated the KGB um, records that were released after um, Glasnost after Gorbachev yeah. they released all these uh, KGB files and, and he had them all he had, he had been the translator for them and had put out a book about it and he had all this stuff in the um, he actually looked up my he asked me for my parents name the first thing he did, and I got freaked out, even though they're dead. I was like, you want names? I'm supposed to give you names. That's what the like, House on American Activities wanted, committee wanted. So, and, But I did give them the name, and he looked it up. He couldn't find them. He said my father's record might have been someplace in Russia still. And it became really obvious that all the things that I had sort of thought were not true or a lot of the things I thought were not true were true. The the um the Communist Party in Russia really was behind the American Communist Party. There were a lot of very sincere people who just wanted to help people, but they were they were being manipulated by the Russians, which is kind of astonishing to even hear myself say that. Mm hmm There's a comment you made well, you uh, related that your father had made about um, the crimes being worse than the Goldbergs. Uh, the Rosenbergs. Oh, the, the Rosenbergs. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Canadian. The Goldbergs <laughs> is a TV show. 
<laughs> oh, I should give my history BA back to the university at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Rosenbergs did become an international um, affair, I mean, because they were actually killed, mm -hmm. you know, for treason. And um, a lot of countries were against that happening. And I remember when I was growing up, there was this big, fat, beige book about the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg that was on the bookcase right behind my parents had a bedboard that was like a little bookcase and um, I remember looking through it not understanding really what it was and um, when my father made that comment he really did say that and I didn't ask him what he meant and I still can't believe that I didn't ask him what he meant. I mean, I was probably, it was maybe 15 years ago or something, and I was an adult, and he said this incredible thing to me, and I didn't say, what do you mean, Dad? You know, what could you possibly have done that was worse than the Rosenbergs? They were supposedly transmitting atomic secrets to the Russians. And um, I didn't ask him, so I have no idea what he meant. Do you think you'll ever find out? I don't know. I did find out a lot of things that they were doing. I interviewed my mother's best friend from Brooklyn, and um, they joined the Young Communists together. And um, she told me things that I didn't know about, like that my father was a bodyguard at Peekskill, where um, there was a big attack on, um, oh, I'm sorry, I just lost his name. God, that's my turn to be embarrassed. <laughs> Famous folk singer, folk singer who became a communist, and I'll think of his name in a minute. But um, Peekskill was like a riot. It's also something that was pretty so famous in American history. Woody I don't Guthrie? Know it, it wasn't Woody Guthrie. It was Paul Robeson. There we go. I was thinking for some reason I got Robinson instead of Robeson. <laughs> so anyway, um, so that was a big, there were, uh, many people got hurt and the, the cops just sat by and let the townspeople attack them. And uh, Robeson did come back and do the, the concert another time. And um, my father was one of his bodyguards, which he never told me. And so really interesting thing. I would have liked to know that, you know. So, And I also found out that he was laundering money for the communists, but that's how he bought our house in Hempstead. And these are all things I had no idea. But it's really hard. Um, I'm really glad I interviewed all these people, because some of them aren't alive anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, but it's very hard to research something that was secret. Yeah. You know? Well, it's I've like... I've gotten some things that are sort of close to it, but there really was this underground railroad of people who were helping communists get out of the country or get a new identity or escape jail or go to Mexico or Russia or to wherever they were going. And my parents were a stop on it. I have no memories of that. But my father did tell me that. It's funny because, like, you look at something like what Carol Tyler's doing, and it's very easy for her to get all this information to research because it's all it's American War, it's the Italy. Well, yeah, it's very interesting to yeah. to do research, and I realized that you know I never trained as a researcher. What this guy at the Library of Congress told me was cast a wide net, you know, yeah. which I think is is a good way to go. But um, it's one thing when, you know, I did write for records and I uh, got a lot of things with things redacted, you know, crossed out, and, and then they conveniently say they lost all of my father's records, they don't exist, and um, there's a lot of um, mystery. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this book. Part of it will probably be about the mystery. Yeah. The hunt. There, are, there are definitely things I'll never know. Yeah, it's a it's it's the hunt part. It's the and that's kind of exciting to me that 
being able to it is exciting, jump in. Very hard. <laughs> Did you ever talk to Kim Deitch about having communist parents? Um, yeah, I did actually. Was um, his father went to Czechoslovakia, and so I don't think that Kim had a very good feeling about that. I mean, basically, his parents split up, and his father went to Czechoslovakia. But before that, his father was, you know, an animator, and and Kim learned a lot from him. And um, I think everybody's situation is slightly different, you know. You can put us on the boat and label it red diaper babies, but everybody had their own experience of it. Some people went to commie camp. You know, I have a friend whose mother was a communist and sent her to camp, and they all sang, you know, communist songs, and it was all open. I had nothing like that. I went to Republican Party picnics. <laughs> I guess that shows the level of involvement of uh, of your family being probably a lot more involved than the other family. I don't know how they chose the people to go underground. Yeah. Uh, um, I did find a book written this guy, a memoir this guy wrote about his parents being told to leave their apartment on Ocean Parkway and leave all their stuff in it. Somebody else would live there, and they had to go live in Philadelphia because he was hot, you know. Yeah. And, and they took false names and... Um, then they had to leave Philadelphia and go somewhere in New Jersey because they were fa- found out. And so those those were people that had gone underground. And the Communist Party got very paranoid that um, the they were going to get raided and their records would get taken and they gave people books to hide. And um, it was... So a lot of people did go underground, but... I haven't met or found out that anybody else who's actually on this Underground Railroad. Can you imagine having to change your life like that? It's, I don't know, very frightening to me, just having your life being in someone else's control. Yes. To such an extent. Well, it is. Um, it's, It's basically, it was like being in a cult. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, and so that is just to remind folks that's the story in Glitz to Go Red Diaper Baby um, which was originally in one of the comics journal special editions um, thank you Diane for chatting with me today I really appreciate it uh, as I said I'm a big fan of of Dee Dee Glitz your comics and the Twisted oh, Sisters you. anthologies um I've always had a real fondness for those books and uh, especially for all the folks in there. So thank you for putting them together. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It was fun. Thank you, Diane. I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied, it's gonna bring you back. I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied, it's gonna bring you back.
my dress to my knees I give my total load of who I please I'm satisfied It's gonna bring you back I'm satisfied Tickled too Old enough to marry you I'm satisfied It's gonna bring you back I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied. It's gonna bring you back, I'm satisfied, tickled too, old enough to marry you, I'm satisfied. It's gonna bring you back.